Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 5.9 of the fan, Ben Ennis, Blake Murphy, and, you know, they're probably scrambling in New Zealand right now after the story drops late last night, makes waves in this country for a number of hours, and then pretty quickly, John Herdman and the rest of Canada soccer releasing statements that John Herdman will, in fact, be the head coach of Canada's national soccer team through the next World Cup cycle, which happens to be played in North America and uh, some games, group stage in this country. John Herdman will remain with uh, Canada. But was it dicey there for a second? Let's talk to James Sharman, host of Room 442. How's it going, buddy? It's going just great, Ben. How you doing? I'm doing all right. Um, maybe not as good as John Herdman, who who played this out real, real well, I, I guess. Like, we don't know, I, I suppose... Whether he got some extra cash, I would imagine he did. That that that's in retrospect now, James, and and there were people speculating about it in the moment, considering it was just a report that that they had agreed to something and nothing had been signed. That it was a money play, isn't that what you think? That's why I initially thought, yeah. But uh, listen, John Herbin signed a new contract after qualifying and um, before the World Cup through 2026. So that deal was signed. Now, now, were there any outs within that, that deal? I don't know, uh, possibly, but it would make sense. I and mean, listen, we're not naive. We, we know how the sports world turns. Um, often, you, you can renegotiate. You can use um, you know, success to your advantage and leverage more money. Maybe that's what happened. I'm not sure. Um, for, and I, I understand these conversations happened uh, a few weeks ago. Um, he did talk to New Zealand. There was, there's lots of speculation and interested parties for John Herbert's signature. Um, but he was under contract with, with Canada, and he's still under contract with Canada. And uh, as we saw by the statements today from John and from, from the, uh, the brass at Canada Soccer, he'll remain there, at least for the time being. Now, whether he's still there by 2026, you know, that remains to be seen. But right now and for the foreseeable future, he's still the man in charge. So let's, let's play out the scenario where this was uh, a real threat to happen, whatever the, the contractual situation, it was possible that John Herdman could go and be the manager of the New Zealand national program. Um, what would that have done to the men's side of this Canadian soccer program? Like, I, I think people could get there with the idea of him taking a step up or going to uh, the club side for, for that kind of challenge, but going to a different national program at a team that's a lateral or below Canada, what would that have done to the program? What did Canada soccer avoid here? Yeah, that's a really, really good uh, question. Um, listen, the bottom line is, had he left Canada and joined New Zealand, that would have looked really badly on, on Canadian soccer because that, there's no doubt it's a step down. Now, with respect to New Zealand soccer, listen, I, I love New Zealand. The, the sporting culture there is second to none. They love their sports. Um, but soccer over there is still developing. It's, it's many years behind Canada in many ways as far as the quality of the players being produced, the current team there. They're 105 in the world in the FIFA rankings, and Canada's 53 right now. They're, they're playing teams like Tahiti and Fiji in qualifying. Um, they, they beat the Solomon Islands in the final of Oceania qualifying and then lost to Costa Rica in the intercontinental playoffs. So they're the teams that New Zealand play on a regular basis where Canada's playing, you know, the USA, they're playing Mexico, they're playing Costa Rica, you know, good teams. Now, I know we criticize CONCACAF, but it could be worse, right? It could be in Oceania, for example. So, you know, add in the fact that, that there's this new alliance beginning in 2024 between CONCACAF and CONMEBOL, which is the South American Confederation, um, Copa Americas, uh, 
other tournaments, both men's and women's, a real collaboration between the two confederations. This is a really good time to be a Canadian football player and to be a Canadian football coach as well. It's a great program to be involved in as far as the teams you're going to be playing in the next couple of years. So to go to New Zealand, um, if that was a case from a professional standpoint, I, I don't see why it makes much sense. Um, but, you know, there's obviously that, that pull. He, he did coach there for five years between 06 and 11. Um, he obviously loves the country. His son's played for the U20s of New Zealand before. So there's that side of things. And he's a family man at heart. But uh, from, a, from a purely professional standpoint, to move to New Zealand to coach the men's team from Canada, that is definitely a step down. Yeah, it is. Um, and who knows what the other offers that he alluded to were. Uh, he said he turned down a bunch of offers. A whole whack of them. But, yeah, if, if this is the most notable one, that that's, that's a bit surprising to me because, James, I, I didn't totally discount the possibility of John Herdman's final hurrah for Team Canada being at that World Cup and him getting all kinds of acclaim and Canada playing well, and they did at times. But, yeah, they, they, I, I kind of thought that he would have some shine to him coming off that World Cup and there would be a bunch of attention on him and he would maybe get some offers at more significant nations or or the club mm-hmm. lover or whatever. I, are you surprised if, in fact, that wasn't the case? Or what, what, I guess, what did you make of the news cycle surrounding him at the World Cup? I mean, especially with mm-hmm. the, the stuff with Croatia and ending up on, on the front page of a newspaper there with the fake body, the Maple Leaf covering his, mm-hmm. uh, his penis and whatnot. But uh, what, 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 did you, what did you make of the news cycle surrounding John Herdman? And did, did, did it play out the way you maybe anticipated? Yeah, you know, I think, um, and he admits it, right? It was a real learning experience for him as well as a coach. You know, I think... And Canadian soccer circles, we, we tend to really, you know, jump on the positives, right? And fair enough, listen, the, the qualifying journey was just incredible. And where he's brought this program from when he first got to where he's at now is really very impressive. But he's still a young coach. He's got much to learn, right? And, and I think he made some mistakes at the World Cup. He'll acknowledge that. Um, his, his stock may have been higher before the World Cup than it was after the World Cup. But he can bounce back and get to what he wants. Um, you know, not too many coaches have, you know, gotten big jobs out of the World Cup so far. You know, he's not the only one. Um, I, I can't think of another one that's got a really, you know, great job out of it. Some, some have lost their jobs. Look at Greg Berhalter, for example, in the States at the moment. And that, that gong show down there, he had a pretty good World Cup. <laughs> so, um, yeah, listen, there were mistakes made. Um, there were good moments on the pitch. Um, there were not so good moments on the pitch. We, we've been through this, you know, a, a thousand times. But, you know, he's still in that, you know, I want to say it's not the infancy of his career. You know, he's, he's not a kid by any stretch of the imagination, but he's not. He's still in, in that kind of middle age of his coaching journey right now. And he's got a long way to go still. And he's got a pretty good deal, right? If you're thinking about Canada right now, and we know the challenges, you know, working in the game in this country, it, the frustrations, there's many. But there's also a pretty sweet gig. You've got a World Cup coming on home soil in 2026. As I mentioned, you've got the, this new collaboration with, with Con Mabal coming up. He makes pretty good money. I'm not sure how much, but it's, you know, the speculation is it's pretty decent money, more than uh, you know, a Canadian coach has made in, in the past. Um, and, and there's no pressure. You know, as much as we like to think there is pressure, there is no pressure compared to footballing nations. Right? It's a pretty sweet gig right now. So there's a lot to like about this job. So you know, we should be surprised if he's still there. But the, the question is still there. Will, will he be there in 2026? Right? That's still three, over three years away. It's a long time in football parlance. So uh, we'll have to wait and see. So this this didn't settle it for you. You you still think that that's up in the air? Like the idea of, of him, like that that statement seemed pretty definitive. I guess he's had definitive statements before, but you don't think 
that this means for sure that he's going to be the head coach of the national team through the next World Cup cycle? I, I don't think so, no. I mean, listen, he, he might well be. This is, this is football. Coaches change jobs, mm. you know, like they change their underwear, right? Mm. <laughs> it happens all the time. Mm. They've got some big tournaments coming up. You've got a Gold Cup this summer. You've got potentially a, a Copa America, which is incredible, in 2024, maybe 2025 as well. There's this Nations League games, which is now far more important than they were before. So there's a lot of football between now and then. And, and if he has a good Gold Cup, and Canada, you know, Canada could win a Gold Cup, for example. And they should be playing for trophies now. Yeah. His stock will rise, and maybe that phone call comes in from from a club overseas. And it's very hard to turn it down. But but if not, hey, you know, you're coaching a team at a home World Cup. How great is that? Yeah, I think it'd be pretty good. Yeah, maybe the next call is from Australia. Although you know, Flight of the Concords would say that's not a step up. But yeah. I, I think, <laughs> um, so I, I, the, my natural inclination is to, like, dunk on Canada soccer, right? When you see the story ar- arrive at, like, midnight, it's like, oh, they're doing it again. They're screwing it up. They, they're going <laughs> to blow this, like, this incredible wave of success for the first time in almost 40 years, and they're going to squander it because they're morons. Um, and they didn't. And, and, and it, we're not that far removed from Dr. Nick Bontis being on his hands and knees and saying, please, please just take this offer, right? And and the, the horrible negotiations that took place uh, when it came to the money and the windfall that, that came to this organization by qualifying for a World Cup. What, what do they have to do to, to, to get rid of that narrative surrounding them and that reputation? Yeah, well, listen, I mean, they're an easy target, aren't they? As simple as that. And, and that's, I know, reading social media the last, uh, you know, 17, 18 hours, my word, people had the knives out for them already, even though they were blindsided by this. That they, I'm sure they were well aware of conversations John had had with, with New Zealand or whoever it was you know, prior to this, but no one expected the leak to come when it came and the story to break. So they were surprised by this. Um, you know, how do they get over that? Well, listen, they've made the, the, step, the right steps in the right direction to qualify for a World Cup. Getting the CBA signed would be a good idea, right? That'd be handy. Um, these things take a long time. It took the USA 60 years to get their deal done. Right, so these things can take a long time. You know, it's in the hands of lawyers right now. You know what that means. Um, so that would be a step in the right direction. There's a women's World Cup coming up with a very good Canadian team. Um, you know, a good tournament there will help the morale of the game in this country. But really, it's just you know showing their credibility, showing their professionalism. Oh, Cochrane's now the man in charge. You know, he, he's reputable. He's smart. I think he'll do a great job. Nick Bontis is still there, of course. You know, he's been there. He's done it at all, all levels of the game. So I think they've got the people in place. But, you know, until, you know, they actually prove themselves and get these deals signed and, and just try and forget about the ghosts of the past, which is difficult, of course, um, it's going to be a long process. People love to, an easy target, right? And that's what they are. So let's look ahead to the near-term future a little bit instead here. And you mentioned a little earlier, there's now this window open for CONCACAF teams to make Copa America. Um, We had talked about, James, when you were on with us after the World Cup, how important an event like that in 2024 could be as Canada tries to sharpen their iron ahead of a 2026 World Cup appearance. Um, We don't know exactly what the the nations looks like for the 2023 2024 schedule we're still going through the 2022 2023 with some matches ahead in march um but the six best Concacaf teams getting into the copa americas how i mean you you probably have to feel pretty good about that given where canada was last time through um are there any things in the nation's process that could trip canada up uh or or is this something that you're fairly confident canada will be able to take part in well, listen, if, they, if it is, you know, as, as we hear, six CONCACAF teams qualifying through the Nations League, if Canada isn't one of those, 
then that might be reason for John Hoban to lose his job, <laughs> right? <laughs> that might be the reason why it changes. You know, it, it's going to happen. Canada, you know, we saw in qualifying how good they were. Now, listen, the states are much better. Mexico is much better. It's going to be competitive for sure. But to reach a Copa America and play, you know, the likes of Brazil and Argentina, the World Cup champions, it, it's a game changer, I think, for the game in, in this region. Uh, you know, it's all very well playing Honduras and Costa Rica and Curacao, you know, you know, some good teams in there, right? But doing it all the time is frustrating. Getting some other opponents, the top at the top, top pointy end of world football will be fantastic because I think we saw at the World Cup, we saw them play Belgium and, and they play well, but listen, Belgium is a broken team. We, we know that, but they play very well. Then they play Croatia and we found out just how, how good Croatia, a top team is. There's still a big gulf there. So how, how do you close that gap? Well, you play these teams on a more regular basis. Now, what's a little bit sad, I think, is that, you know, Copa America in 2024 will likely be in the States. Um, it would be great to play on the road in South America, expose these players to some more hostile environments. That would be absolutely incredible. But, you know, let's not, you know, beggars can't be choosers, right? Playing Argentina in, I don't know, New York, it's pretty good, right? Yeah. No. <laughs> it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world. So, uh, but yeah, it's just a real game changer, you know, getting these guys exposed against the very best in the world. We're seeing on the club level now, right? We're seeing, we've, we've been over it, Alfonso Davis, you know, and Stefan Estacchio, these players playing in the Champions League, playing against very good players, but getting more of these players exposed, really important. Yeah, I think it, it, it's a more likely travel destination for uh, the voyageurs to go down to, to New York City uh, mm-hmm. than it is to maybe go to Buenos Aires. Yeah, I can't wait to see Canada play Leo Messi or Canada play in Brazil. That, that'll be... Uh, It'll be a wild ride. Um, before we let you go, Super Bowl, fast approaching. What if you like want to eat a, a, a savory pie for a Super Bowl? <laughs> well, well, how, it's how, it's would you funny suggest? you mentioned, Ben. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned that. You know, no, no, my, my, my pie business, I have a brand new pie out. We've got a few more coming out actually in the next little while, but uh, the one for the Super Bowl is, is a cheesy chili oh, pie. Boy. I tell you what, this thing's pretty special. You know, I've been <laughs> eating a lot of them. Um, it's my job now. Now, <laughs> to eat pies is your job. I think it's just yeah, to make yeah. them. Someone's got to be the quality control officer, right? <laughs> well, that's what I'm here <laughs> for, man. You send all of these through. I, I'm there's a reason I'm walking around as the chubby guy on the show. It's this, this is supposed to be where I can finally help the guests out. Yeah, hey, I think I'm getting chubbier myself, but hey, listen, you know, it's my job now, like I said. But yeah, it's um, a cheesy chili pie, shamansproper.ca. We deliver, we have in store. Take a look, purchase, enjoy. Don't, don't. Let it be known, but there's a rumor that it might extend beyond the Super Bowl as well if there's enough interest. So mm. just so you know, but I appreciate the shout out there. Yeah, no problem, buddy. Yeah, so listen, if you want to extend the lifespan of the cheesy chili pie, you better support it. Uh, limited time only, perhaps. Perhaps Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, James. See ya. Thanks, fellas. Uh, James Sharman, host of Room 442. I noticed there's no uh, nutritional... Um, data on any of the pies on the website. As uh, mm. you know, listen. If you're eating a savory pie, cheesy chili, uh, savory pie, I, I, I don't probably not part of your diet. You know, here's the thing: calories don't count on Super Bowl Sunday. That's a hundred percent correct. In the airport and on the Super Bowl, <laughs> calories don't count. It's law. You can also start drinking at like nine a.m. on Super Bowl Sunday. Yeah, you sure can. Um, all right, got anything else on Herdman? Like I, I we, we've said plenty. And it is all also, though, interesting for me to hear from people who know a whole lot more about this sport and the news cycles, like James Sharman, who says that, yeah, I know you saw the quote from John Herdman and everybody involved in the organization, but 
126 is a long time from now. Like that, that this isn't sewn up that he would be the head coach. And I suppose, yeah, like some remarkable run of failure would take it out of his hands. It's hard to imagine that Canada, who won their World Cup qualifying CONCACAF group, couldn't be a top six team in CONCACAF and not make it to a Copa America. But I guess stranger things have happened. Um, yeah, I guess also that, the, yeah, he's right. There could be the the news cycle that didn't surround him at the World Cup could happen when he knocks off Messi in Argentina and the World Cup champions in the Copa America. And then, you know, maybe England does come calling. He's the one who sends Messi to Miami, finally. <laughs> yeah. It's Canada being like, you know what, Messi, you're you're at the end here. Go, no. I, I think this is good. It, it kind of feels like a nothing now, even that like it had felt like a looming thing. And then to hear, you know, James explain to us that he had a contract and maybe it had an out, but maybe this was a leverage for a little sweeter of a deal from here. But either way, it's it's nice to... You know, even if 2026 is a really long time away, it's nice at least through that 2024 Copa Americas that we should now all circle on our schedule. Yeah. That, you know, the, the near-term future at least is pretty well set here. Um, the near-term future of the Toronto Raptors is very much up in the air. Uh, they are in Utah to play a jazz team on Sportsnet tonight, and you will be part of the pregame broadcast, which means that you will be t- departing us at the, the bottom of the hour here. Yeah. Um, I, I, I do want to talk a little bit about this Raptors team and a guy we haven't actually talked about because I think it's a very outside chance that he is on the move a week from tomorrow, Pascal Siakam, who's had a a real dip in the numbers this month compared to the the month and change uh, since he returned from his injury through the end of November and and all of December. Um, All of his rate stats are down except for his minutes per game. (laughs) Those are up. Shocker. Um, yeah, and, and and he has all the reason in the world to want to keep playing. You know, the, those all NBA teams are real, real important when it comes well, to making your just, money. Yeah, I mean, he should want to play because that's the type of competitor he is. Eric Green of the Athletic had a piece out today where he talked to Pascal, and, and now it got very poorly aggregated, of course, because it's almost straight deadline. Oh. oh, yeah, it's just like Pascal's out of patience with the Raptors or something <laughs> like that. It's like, no, Pascal was honking what? the horn on the bus because he wanted to leave that practice. <laughs> dot, 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 after the lead of this article, then oh. they get into, yeah. yeah, he would like to be winning, and it's all about, like, the team's performance and the frustration level there, um, not that he wants out or anything. Poor and, Eric. And, and, yeah, like, Poor even Eric, the- who gets, like, he gets more flustered by the poor aggregation than just about anyone I know. So it's like there for like a half a second I was like <laughs> and then I was like, oh poor poor guy, he's in Utah and now he's gotta deal with this. Um, yeah, he can't even drink. Well, I don't know. Can you drink in Utah? The, the, the NBA whole- All Star games in in Utah. So you better, better. be able to <laughs> anyways, yeah, even the part that like we're gonna talk about with the advanced minutes, like even Pascal in the piece is talking about, hey, that's what the money's for. Like that's yeah, I, yeah. And, and that's true to an extent. But I, I mentioned this on the Raptors show with William Liu yesterday. Over the last four seasons, uh, the Raptors have used. I used the cutoff of thirty-eight minutes. It's just that to me is when I start to like raise my eyebrows a little bit in the box score column for minutes. Thirty-eight plus minutes a game. Uh, the Raptors have done it forty-seven percent more often than the next highest team. Not forty-seven percent more often than average. 
or the least team, then the next highest team. Um, we're talking about they've done it over 400 times in the last four seasons. No one else has done it 300 times. That's the the degree we're well, talking about here. And so it's not, it's one of those things where game to game, yeah, the difference between 36 and 38 minutes maybe isn't that much. And you want to win those games. But cumulative. As, a, as a matter of this is your strategy, and it's not like these guys play easy minutes, right? Like Pascal's offensive usage rate in December was over 30%. And he plays uh, non, like he doesn't play the defensive role that some superstars play where he just chills in the corner. Siakam, Ananobi, Van Vliet, Barnes, all top 11 in the league and how much ground they cover defensively in an average game. So these are hard minutes as well. Um, so I don't, I don't, I'm not surprised that he's, teetering off a little bit. I think it's one of those things that it'll probably just round out. You find you dig into anyone's numbers. You're going to have these pockets of fatigue or, or the performance dips or whatever. I think with Pascal, you're seeing it like the, a lot of front rim threes. Yeah. That's generally, I mean, it's not a perfect indicator, but that to me, a front rim three later in a game, that's, Oh yeah. Tired legs. Um, yeah. It also kind of feels like, you know, the, the, you get bad sequencing in baseball where it's like, yeah, you're batting order yeah. for whatever reason. You get a bunch of hits, but you don't score a bunch of runs because they're not sequenced correctly. Yeah. It's like, so Pascal plays great in the month of December when Fred and Scotty stink, and now Fred and yes. Scotty are good, and Pascal takes a step backwards. And it's uh, it's one of those things where... On the one hand, if you were a pretty good team already, that's great because those things maintain your floor, right? Mm -hmm. But the floor for this team is too low. They need all of the pieces clicking. And it's actually been pretty amusing to see that for the month of January, their half-court offense was like, I think January 6th was the cutoff I used. Forgive me for not remembering the exact date. But there was a stretch January 6th, we'll say, until before the Suns game. They were top 10 half-court offense for like three weeks. <laughs> Makes no sense. Pascal starts being shaky. Now, some of that is Scotty Barnes was, uh, you know, they kind of unlocked what it looks like with him as a screener and a role threat often. Uh, Fred Van Vliet's shooting came around. They played some softer defenses. Sure, but it doesn't make sense that this team was suddenly better in the half-court when Pascal Siakam was hitting fewer of his shots. World of credit to Pascal Siakam that he has responded to that with in the month of January, trying to become more of a facilitator instead of a score. Like his usage rate has come down. He's not forcing it. Um, I will say last game was about the worst uh, game I can remember seeing from Pascal Siakam in terms of the extras. Like he had 19 points on 17 shots. That's not very efficient. He didn't get the free throw line a lot, but only three rebounds and one assist. You have to go back to the championship season for the last time Siakam only had four rebounds plus assists in a game with the exception of one game in the bubble. That's how rare that is for Siakam to just like not give you a ton outside of the scoring role. He is usually your best or second best rebounder, your best or second best playmaker, your top three individual defender. It's pretty rare for him to have a game like he had against the Suns where it just didn't look like he could give you much of anything. Hopefully the fact that the rest of this trip doesn't have any back-to-backs, things like that. Like hopefully there are opportunities here for him, for him to get some, some breathers, but I would bet on this turning around and his December being more indicative than his January. Uh, eventually. Such a bizarre thing. Like, and I'm not going to advocate for, 
load management here because I think in a general there's terms, a difference between load management and don't have four guys who lead the league in minutes. There is. But if you're going to do that, how about load management? Like, yeah. <laughs> so this is it. And, and, and this is the argument a little <laughs> bit like during the championship season. One of the arguments for load management is that and I'm going to get business school brain on you here for a second. Okay. Manufacturing. There is there is a fixed cost and a variable cost when it comes to fatigue, right? And so in manufacturing terms, a fixed cost is like, hey, you got to get the line up and running. You got to start the manufacturing line for your widgets. And then the variable cost is like the cost of materials and labor that go into each individual widget. So that mm-hmm. fixed cost gets split over all the little widgets. And then each one has its own variable cost. The way that it's been explained to me in terms of fatigue in the NBA is that the variable cost, which in this case is, say, minutes per game. That's the smaller cost that is a game-by-game, and it's more micro. That has less of an impact than the larger fixed cost, which is get your body up and ready for the game. Games played is a better indicator of overall load than minutes you would minutes I would, in a game listen honestly i would hope so because I, I, i'd be apoplectic even and, more so than i am about load management and that was that was the plan with Kawhi leonard is oh if we want this guy to play 34 35 and then in the playoffs 40 minutes a game it's the 22 games we save him that has a way more outsized effect than if you spread those 600 minutes say out over 82 games but what we're seeing with the Raptors is that, like, unless guys are hurt, they just play every game also. Yeah. And it's tough. And, and like, <laughs> it's hard to – it's hard game to game. And I've said this before. It's, it's really hard game to game to get upset with Nick Nurse about it because you see in that Phoenix Suns game where he turns it over to a Scotty Barnes and bench lineup. And, yeah, maybe he could have staggered things a little differently. But their bench is incapable of keeping up with Phoenix's bench, which is missing a whole bunch of guys. Dude, no, they, they, yeah, they, I understand it. I understand why you play the, the players. The thing, it, each micro decision is yep. justifiable, and then you have this four-year sample of, okay, but it's so extreme. Okay. What about just, like, punting some games? Like, the, the Lakers are life and death to make the play-in, and they're still, and I know LeBron James is a 1,000, and Anthony Davis is a walking injury. I understand that. It's a different scenario than what the Raptors are dealing with here. But it is, like, it's, you know, maybe if we connect the dots here and we look at a team with plenty of talent that's underperformed and doing things differently than every other team, which is not load management, not load managing your stars you don't or even your have starters. To use the term load managing. They play their players more than any other team okay. in the NBA, and it's not even close. But you're not going to change Nick Nurse's mind on that, pretty clearly. So I don't know if it's easier to micromanage if you're a front office by saying, here's the thing Pascal's getting a day off today, Fred's getting a day off here. And, and like, I wonder if we've replayed this season, honestly. If this team's a little fresher now with the good players that it so obviously has that has resulted in this team having the sixth worst record in the NBA, how it looks if these guys aren't playing extreme amounts of minutes, which is never going to change seemingly under Nick Nurse, but at least playing an equitable number of games than the other stars in the league are playing. Now, here's the other scenario that could play out there. You play these guys less and they're fresher and the results are the same or worse, and you realize, oh, the only reason we overperformed in the first place is because we treated every game like a playoff game for years when it wasn't. Mm -hmm. And that, to me, is as much a reason to play normal minutes loads as anything because if if part of what the difference between last year and this year is is that you can no longer foot on the gas for 82 games with this group and that 
like that was the big edge was over was playing your guys way more than anyone else does that to me suggests that it's not really sustainable and it's borderline and i don't think this but the evidence would it would at least be an evidence point and oh well maybe last year was fool's gold yeah and this was a question they had to look at really seriously in the demar and kyle era was is the regular season success that hasn't carried over to the playoffs. And look, 2014 was a bundle of roses and and rainbows and sunshine. The 2015 season was completely embarrassing. And part of it was that Kyle was so broken down by the end. And then we started to see them at least temporarily try to manage Kyle a little better. 2016, again, all the rainbows and sunshine and roses and stuff. And then 2017, you know, it was like, okay, well, the Cavs have our number 2018. It was a complete mental break, and they had to change things. But there were points along that path where you had to look very seriously at why is this working so well in the regular season and not working nearly as well in the playoffs, where even when they're winning playoff series, it is like pulling teeth to get through them. Like you like you need Frank Vogel to give you a big assist to get through the Pacers, and you need the ugliest seven games of basketball anyone will ever watch to beat the Heat, yeah. um, or even to get past the Wizards the following year. Like a Wizards team you were trying to kind of in a revenge series against Oof. was really difficult to get through. So, and they had to evaluate that stuff, and what they eventually came to was, yeah, the pieces have to change here at the coaching position, at, at the star position. This is different because the DeMar Kyle JV teams with Dwayne Casey were never this bad, never even remotely this bad. Like their bad seasons were, oh, we only won 47 games. Mm-hmm. You have to evaluate why something worked in the regular season versus the playoffs, and you have to really evaluate why it only worked twice in the last four years. Yeah, I have an idea. Yeah, uh, It's the thing that this team does that nobody else does in the NBA, at least not to this extent. All right. Um, you have to go get changed, get some makeup. Yeah, a well, little bit. Yeah, I don't know how do I look. You look good. Hair, hair looks uh, on point. But yeah, thanks. All right, shout out to Taylor. All right, <laughs> we'll see you uh, on the TV. All right, when I uh, when I come back, I'll talk to Amy Trask, former Raiders CEO, CBS NFL analyst. The fan drive time continues. Ben Ennis, the departing Blake Murphy, Sportsnet five ninety, the fan. Diving deep into the biggest stories in Toronto sports and the NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. Let's talk to one of the best there is, Amy Trask, former Raiders CEO, formerly, I guess forever, the Princess of Darkness, uh, currently CBS NFL analyst. Uh, Amy, happy National Girls and Women in Sports Day to you. Well, thank you very much. And to be clear, you are absolutely right. I will forever cherish the name Princess of Darkness. I'm going to own that forever, and I hope you're a little afraid of me right now. I, I always am. I'm, I'm definitely intimidated uh, and, yeah, slightly afraid. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, let's, let's go back to, um, the, like, the, the, the heady days of your Princess in, in, in Darkness tenure uh, as Raiders CEO because Tom Brady announces his retirement this morning. This time it does feel for good. Uh, you were there for his first ever postseason victory. 
in January of 2001. Amy, it was uh, it was uh, not the, the the greatest weather day. Um, what what can you tell me about your Tom Brady memories? Well, my first memory of that day was not the weather, but thanks for the memory. <laughs> and look, you know, Tom Brady did what any player would do in that circumstance. He didn't overturn that call. That wasn't on him. He simply enjoyed the fact that the call was overturned, as would any player in his position. So um, no, no harm or no ill, no ill will to Tom. Now, if you want to talk about the officials, we can have a different conversation. And, of course, I'm saying this in the spirit of good sportsmanship with a smile on my face. But um, I agree with you. It does feel very different this time. Did, did you have any idea what uh, you were about to see in the next, oh, I don't know, uh, two decades plus of Tom Brady's career? As, yeah, again, that was his first ever postseason game. Uh, he would go on to win seven Super Bowls. Of course, it's a guy that was uh, not exactly a first-round pick, um, 199th overall selection. I mean, was there any indication that Tom Brady would be the greatest of all time when you were watching him in the tuck rule game? Look, if I knew that night what he would go on to do, if I could project that, if I could foresee that, I would spend a lot more time in the stock market than I do because that would make me very, very good at projections and foreseeing things. Um, No, of course not. Um, Look, you could tell he was a good quarterback, of course, but um, that night certainly did launch him on an upward trajectory that is just – it's – so hard to fathom that that will ever be surpassed. And I love that you pointed out that he was 199th pick, sixth round, 199th pick, because to anyone, and, you know, I address this mostly to kids, but it applies to adults as well. When someone tells you you're not capable of something or you're not good enough or you can't do something, remember that Tom Brady was picked 199th in the draft. 198 people went before him. So if you're a kid and someone says to you what my sixth grade teacher told my mom, which was that I would never get into college, just remember what Tom Brady did. Yeah. Brock Purdy, though, is like, I wish I was drafted 199th overall. That would have been, <laughs> that would have been an improvement. Uh, that being said, so, yeah, like, I, I, it does feel like this is going to stick this time, despite the fact that it's, yeah, he retired on the exact same date last year and then 40 days later was unretiring. It does feel like it. You don't get to do that back-to-back years. And and the performance on the field would indicate that this is, this is it for real. Although there were some landing spots that made some sense. I mean, mentioned Brock Purdy. Of course, he's going to try and recover from that UCL injury. He's going to have Tommy John surgery. And there's Trey Lance there as well, who's recovering from his own injury. That And that's his hometown team. That made some sense. Your, your former team, the Raiders, now playing in Las Vegas as well. Obviously, Derek Carr, it appears to be on the way out of that organization. And his former offensive coordinator is there. Are you a little bit surprised? I mean, yeah, 45-year-old quarterback coming off the year he had, I I, I guess you can't be too surprised, but it did kind of feel like maybe there were some spots for him. I do think there were spots for him in two regards. One, to go in and play and help a team that is missing a starting quarterback, but two, to go in and help a team not only immediately on the field, but to bring along a younger quarterback. And, you know, a veteran quarterback helping a younger quarterback, the importance of that can't be understated. When Patrick Mahomes won his Super Bowl, the first person he thanked was Alex Smith, who was the veteran in place when he came in. 
And he went on to say that it was Alex Smith who helped him develop to the point he had thus developed. So, you know, I think a couple kind of teams would be interested in him, which was one, someone who needed someone to play right now, but also to help a younger quarterback. So I wouldn't have been surprised to see him stay. Not surprised to see him go, but I agree with you. This one feels different. What are your expectations of him in the broadcast realm? Of course, you're a former front office executive turned broadcaster. Um, and, and it's not like I imagine he's going to be nervous or anything, but I, I, I'm curious to see what, what he looks like. And maybe we'll see him at the Super Bowl because Fox has the broadcast rights to uh, the Super Bowl. Well, the fun of it is you are right now with a guest on your radio show who's your guest that went to law school. And the reason I note that is because I'm the guest who will say, objection, Your Honor, calls for speculation. (laughs) And I would hope that the court would um, uphold my objection. Look, I don't want to speculate on what he chooses to do next. I think that's his call, and I get it in radio, and and in, in this day and age, people love to speculate. So please know that when I make my objection to the court, notwithstanding, by the way, that I think my objection should be upheld, I do it with a smile on my face. I simply don't know what the future holds. Um, we'll see. Um, yeah, he's, he's certainly getting a lot of money from Fox. Um, going back to your, your CEO days as well, there was a, there's a comparable that, that just occurred in the Sean Payton trade from the Saints now to the Denver Broncos. Of course, uh, John Gruden uh, departed the Raiders for the Buccaneers and the Raiders got a couple of firsts and a couple of seconds and 8 million bucks, which compared to, <laughs> to, to the, the return for Sean Payton. Wow. That was a King's ransom. This does feel like the sport. If you're, if you're going to go out and give up assets for a head coach more than any other, like it, it's, it's well worth it because of the impact that that person can have on the entire franchise. Uh, I agree with you entirely. I love Sean Payton to the Broncos for a few reasons. Um, The league did adjust the rules. Uh, Trades of coaches are still allowed, of course, and obviously we just saw one with Sean Payton to the Broncos. Um, But they did adjust the rules on compensation after Al made that trade of John to the Buccaneers. I love Sean Payton to the Broncos. Um, Russell Wilson was a very, very, very different quarterback in Seattle with Pete Carroll than he was in Denver with Nathaniel Hackett. And that is an understatement. So I can't wait to see what Sean is able to do with dangerous Russ or danger Russ. I never know whether to add the double R danger Russ, I guess. Um, And yes, I understand Raider fans may be annoyed by that because the Broncos are Raider rivals. I just think the world of Russell Wilson and I'd love to see him resurge under Sean Payton. You know, people talk a lot about Russell Wilson being a small quarterback. Well, you know who else was? Drew Brees. And we saw what Sean did with Drew. Yeah, he had uh, some success, I would say. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, sending Drew Brees uh, into the Hall of Fame. Um, So uh, apparently this was not that desirable a job, though, Amy, if if you believe the reports that D'Amico Ryans twice turned it down to go join a Houston Texans team that's obviously in a different phase of their development but that's his first kick at the head coaching can also the report that jim harbaugh was very much you know a desired candidate for the denver broncos is it surprising to you if if in fact those reports are accurate that this broncos job was not all that desirable well, I don't know if and to what extent they were accurate with respect to D'Amico Ryan, and I wish him all the very, very best. I'm thrilled he has that opportunity. Who knows if Houston was particularly attractive to him because of the time he spent in Houston and an attachment he may have. 
And what I'm about to say, I'm going to say with a giant smile on my face, and I'm sure it had nothing to do with it. But, you know, Texas doesn't have state income tax, and Colorado does. And no, no, I don't think that had anything to do with it. But he may feel an emotional attachment to to the Texans. I, I don't... Um, I don't know if anyone was turned off by what's going on or has gone on in Denver, but I think it's a heck of a match for Sean Payton. Uh, going back to, to the 49ers for just a second, Amy, because now that Tom Brady's off the board, we, we start to think secondarily about what their quarterback situation is going to be next season as they, again, will go into a year with Super Bowl aspirations, I imagine. And Brock Purdy's having the Tommy John surgery, which is apparently a six-month recovery period, which would put him in and around the start of the season. But I imagine it would be pretty difficult to to, to count on him uh, for the start of the year. And there's the Trey Lance of it all. W- what do you expect that the 49ers are going to do at the quarterback position? Well, I think it's going to depend a lot on the health of both Trey Lance and Brock Purdy. And Trey looks to be on a trajectory to come back as predicted. Uh, Brock Purdy, ha- Purdy has a recovery time in front of him. And boy, oh boy, you talk about a team that has dealt with quarterback injuries from Trey Lance to Jimmy Garoppolo to Brock Purdy. What I expect is Jimmy Garoppolo will not be there. I believe the 49ers have indicated that. But I think that writing was very apparently on the wall. And I think we're going to have to see what's going to happen with respect to the health of those two players. It would not surprise me in the slightest if they bring someone else in because of those two injury issues. I guess stated differently, it would be surprising to me if they didn't bring someone else in because you never know how an injury recovery is going to go. Yeah, it could be a real interesting offseason, though, for quarterbacks. I mean, Tom Brady's out of the mix, yeah. but, but of course Aaron Rodgers still hanging out there, and it really does, by every indication, appear that he is going to be on the move from Green Bay. Uh, Derek Carr, of course, like his his status in Las Vegas, very much in doubt. Um, maybe we'll start with Rodgers here, Amy, because the the Jets have organized their offseason in such a manner in in hiring Nathaniel Hackett as their offensive coordinator that I imagine... Jets fans now will be crestfallen if, in fact, they don't get Aaron Rodgers. It, it really does feel like you've you've kind of killed maybe some of their negotiating leverage if, in fact, they had any because it, it, it just feels like every move that's been made, every comment that's been made is leading to the Aaron Rodgers trade to New York. So which I'll say perhaps, um, you know, as to leverage, uh, you know, as to leverage, there's two sides to that coin, so to speak. There's the issue of what New York would be willing to give up. There's the issue of does Green Bay want a graceful way to move on? Is Green Bay willing to accept something less from an opponent in a different conference than they would from someone in the NFC? I think all of those things factor in. Uh, Aaron has not been shy about talking about how much he likes Nathaniel. He did that this week again. I would not be surprised to see him end up there. But it's a long off season. We got a lot of time to go. There's free agency. There's the draft. We shall see. But if I'm Green Bay, I would take less in trade compensation to have Aaron out of my conference. Uh, and then Derek Carr. I mean, he's obviously still a, a capable quarterback, not a guy that, that won back-to-back MVPs just a couple of seasons ago. But do you think he's still capable of, of you know, given the right circumstance, and maybe that's in San Francisco, leading a team to, to the playoffs or a Super Bowl? Can he? Probably. Would I push all my chips to the middle of the table, so to speak, on it? No, I wouldn't. 
I think he is a very good quarterback. I don't think he's an extraordinary quarterback. Now, that said, the Raiders have to answer a question that I ask all the time. This dates back to my years in the league when fans would yell, you know, in the stadium or otherwise at us, you know, you should cut that quarterback or you should get rid of that coach or make some such decision. My response was, and do what? What the Raiders need to decide now is what they're going to do next. And if the answer to and do what isn't as good or better than the status quo, they got to take a long, hard look at that. No, 100%. And, yeah, maybe the the, the and what was Tom Brady and uh, it's not available at the current uh, moment. Yeah, you never know. Uh, Amy, always a pleasure to uh, to chat to you. Thanks so much for this. The pleasure is always mine. It really is an honor to join you. Thank you. Thank you, Amy. Amy Trask, former CEO of the Raiders, now a CBS Sports analyst. And you do wonder if maybe shutting Derek Carr down at the end of the year, you know, it's the guy that you want to keep healthy. You want to be able to trade him because you're lining your ducks up to to go get Tom Brady. And then Tom Brady says goodbye. And you're like, well, what are our options here? We're not getting Aaron Rodgers. Maybe Derek Carr is our best option. We'll see, though. It's going to be a fascinating offseason uh, in the NFL. Leafs, Bruins tonight, Scotiabank Arena on Sportsnet. Last game for the Maple Leafs before, one, the All-Star break, and then, two, the bye week coming after the All-Star break. So their next game comes a week from Friday. This would, at this point, be the rubber match of the season series between these two teams they play four times so there's another one coming but both these teams splitting the first two games naturally early uh samsonov getting the start in goal for the leafs is matt murray still banged up not yet on ltir or uh indicated that he's going to miss any prescribed length of time but it'll be joe wall as the backup tonight before we head to last call I do want to make note of something that Elliot Friedman wrote today in his 32 Thoughts column. Um, This is a very interesting season for the Toronto Maple Leafs for obvious reasons. Like, they need to win around, and Kyle Dubas is in the final year of his contract, and yada, 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 and they can negotiate extensions for Austin Matthews and William Nylander, it should be noted at the end of this year. We just saw a rental player, who I'm sure the Islanders don't expect to be a rental player, Bo Horvat, traded more than a month out from the deadline. And according to Frank Saravelli and just about everybody, the Leafs had no interest there. But Elliot on Sportsnet.ca wrote, quote, I still don't believe the Leafs are trading their first rounder or any of their top prospects for a rental either. Which, if you believe to be true... Takes them out of the running for Ryan O'Reilly, for Patrick Kane, for Jonathan Taves. And I know Timo Meyer is like a restricted free agent, but he has a $10 million qualifying offer. So essentially uh, an unrestricted free agent, unless you want to risk having him on a one-year deal for $10 bucks. Takes him out of the running for Timo Meyer. To which I would say that's insane. And maybe it's like short-sighted for Kyle Dubas to, to make an all-in Alex Anthopoulos 2015 move 
for a guy who's not going to be around for the long haul. But man, if there's an if there's ever a time to try something like that without the fear of uh, fan anger. I mean, not that fans ever get angry at like an all-in move where you give up future assets because, you know, you want to win a Stanley Cup today. You'd like to win a round today. But this is it. Who's going to blame Kyle Dubas if he gives up Matthew Nyes for Ryan O'Reilly? And, uh, yeah, the caveat being he wins a round or two or a Stanley Cup. And obviously, like, that's an unfair part of the equation to be talking about. But, no, this is, if ever there was a year to be reckless, this is it. I guess it depends on the market, but if the Horvat trade was any indication, it is going to take an upper-level prospect and a first-round pick to get any of those guys. And that's with no assurances that the Islanders will be able to sign Horvat long-term. All right, time now for last call. Brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Leafs, Bruins, third of four times tonight at Scotiabank Arena. And uh, Leafs, in a rare moment, underdogs in this game. They're plus 108. Bruins, minus 127. Uh, the Bruins have lost three straight. Pasternak to score a goal, plus 102. And he has a goal in the last three. Each of the last three, which were all losses, as mentioned. Uh, Brad Marchand, plus 170 to score in tonight's game. He has a, also a goal in all of the last three games. Of course, Austin Matthews still out. John Tavares to score a goal, plus 180. He's got one goal, five assists in his last four. Uh, Mitch Marner, plus 200. William Nylander, plus 170. He has four goals in his last four games. Raptors, Jazz, in Utah, 9 o'clock, also on Sportsnet 1. Jazz, three-and-a-half-point favorites at home. Scotty Barnes, the assist total, five-and-a-half, as uh, that's paying plus 117. Fred Van Vliet, assist total over six-and-a-half is paying minus 137. And that was Last Call, brought to you by Bet Rivers. It's a whole new game. Leafs, Raptors, both on Sportsnet tonight. We'll be back tomorrow. This has been the Fan Drive Time. Sportsnet 590, the fan.